All right, good morning. Welcome to Calvary the Hill. It's good to see you all. Uh, my name's Nick. I'm the pastor here. Just going to walk through a few announcements uh, before we open up the scriptures. Um, so if you've, if you've been here a while, you can tune me out for the next two minutes, okay? Because um, I'm going to give the, the spiel about if you're new. So if you're new uh, and you want to know kind of what's going on here on a, on a regular basis, you can sign up for our newsletter, and that goes out uh, via email. You can scan the QR code there or sign up on the website. And then uh, if you're new here and you're wondering if we have bathrooms, if your anxiety is starting to go up because you don't know where it is, uh, we do have bathrooms. They're out the front door. Take a right up the sidewalk, and then there's an outdoor stairwell that goes down to some bathrooms. And then also... Uh, we serve lunch every single week here, except for the fifth Sunday, but today we do have lunch. Uh, that'll be at 12.30 over at the Parsonage House next door, right up here. Uh, and today, we're having nachos. Yeah, those are good. Um, so yeah, feel free to stick around for that. Uh, anyone is welcome. All right, you can tune me back in if you were tuning me out. Uh, but yeah, first, first off, happy Thanksgiving. This is the last Sunday before Thanksgiving, so that's great. Yeah. And I mean, as we sort of pray, like Thanksgiving is supposed to be one of the marks of a Christian, is we should be giving thanks. That's, that's 101 to following the God of the Bible, is to, to give him honor, to give him thanks, uh, to bless his name for as the UGM guys often pray, waking us up this morning. I love that. Like, that's been one of the themes of, of the prayers coming out of uh, the UGM uh, community is thank you, God, for waking me up today. I love that. So if you don't have anything else to thank God for, you can thank him for that. Um, but yeah, happy Thanksgiving. And, and yeah, we just pray for, for any gatherings that are happening that, they, that you would be full of the Spirit and can... Uh, be the presence of the Lord wherever you are. So, um, all right. So this Tuesday, we're still going to get together, pray uh, in the morning. That's at 730. Uh, if you're able to make it, we gather at the Parsonage or on Zoom. And there's a Zoom link in the, the newsletter that you can jump on. It's always a good time. All right. And then I think the last announcement I'm going to mention is uh, we're doing a uh, an end-of-the-year uh, fundraising campaign uh, we're calling Cultivate. And as probably most of you have noticed, if you've been around here any length of time, is we have a lot of leaders who do a lot, who pour out, you know, whether it's in the lunch ministry or the worship ministry or the kids' ministry or um, just all around the deacons, uh, sound, cleaning the church. Just There's so many people that do so many things. And as we've kind of looked at our, our budget this year going into next year, we just want to do some extra things to bless those people uh, and to pour into them. And so we're raising some funds, a total of $10,500 to uh, invest in these leaders. And that, those funds will go towards things like uh, leadership coaching for some of the new roles that are coming into place with uh, the board of the church, um, some new elder candidates, Lord willing, uh, and so that's, that'll be great, and then also a few retreats that we're going to have for our leaders, uh, both at the Lane, which is a spiritual direction and retreat house uh, over in North Capitol Hill, 
as well as a women's leader uh, retreat in May. And then also we're partnering with an organization called Equip, uh, and they're great. They um, come alongside church leaders to uh, invest in them and teach in the area of LGBTQ uh, discipleship and walking with people who are in the LGBTQ community who want to follow Jesus faithfully and kind of how to do that uh, and how to walk alongside people both with truth of the scriptures as well as the love of Christ. And so there's just all these uh, things that we want to do to pour into our leaders and so we're raising some funds for that. So obviously you're welcome to participate financially but also I want to invite you to if you have family or friends that you uh, that know of our church and love our church from afar, I want to invite you to uh, invite them to partner with us uh, in this campaign. Um, so, and that's pretty much it. So that's all I'll say about that. Thank you for listening. Um, so every week we dive into the scriptures um, because really uh, God's word is the thing that our church is grounded on. If it weren't for this book, uh, we would not be here right now. And so um, we're going to dive into it as we always do this morning. And we're going to, this is our last week in the letter of Colossians before we take a break. And then for the next four Sundays, we're going to do an Advent series as we anticipate uh, Christmas. And I'm really excited for this uh, series. It's called Behold. And the goal of it is to provide us uh, 21st century, modern, American, busy Christians who tend to pack our lives to the brink, just a chance for us to remember that most of what we do as believers in Christ is just behold what he's done and reflect and embrace and remember that he has finished it. And so you know, when he came in the first advent as a child, as, as an infant, um, he was putting himself in a helpless place. And we are also helpless. And we are helpless apart from what God did. And so this will just be a chance for us to look at a few stories of the first advent and be discipled in our ability to just stop and look. Just like the shepherds did just like Mary was instructed to do, and Joseph and uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple. Just behold what God has done. So we're going to do that together. But today we're back in Colossians, so go ahead and grab your Bibles uh, if you have them. If you don't have your Bible, there's a Bible in front of you or around you in the pew. But go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. And in the pew Bible, it's page 984. All right, we're going to be reading Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. And uh, once you're there, go ahead and stand up. If you're able. <laughs> All right, uh, go ahead and just follow along with me as I read uh, Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we examine this somewhat perplexing passage this morning, uh, we pray that your spirit would examine us and reveal things that we did not know before about your word and about ourselves, and that we could then, uh, in freedom, walk towards you. I pray that as Paul addresses massive distractions that were uh, plaguing this church, that we would be convicted of our own embrace of distractions, and that we could, with clear heads, remember what's important, and remember you as we go from this place today and into the week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So how many of you, in, as I was reading this passage, are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Marco's the only brave soul to raise his hand. There we go. Yeah. So this passage is about as close as it gets to Paul telling us what exactly was consuming this church and what was distracting them from the gospel. But even then, it remains a challenge for us to determine what exactly, what this false teaching, or as he calls it, a philosophy, was. But what we do know for sure is the solution that Paul is painting. So in chapter 1, just to give a quick zoom out, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul gave us a cosmic view of Jesus Christ. That he is both creator and redeemer. He is God incarnate and above all, other rulers and authorities everywhere. That's who Jesus is. And then in chapter 2, he is now trying his hardest to convince this church, this body of believers, that through their belief in Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, they are now with him where he is. And then he'll finish out the letter here in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, encouraging them to now walk in this new reality. So what is it, though, that's their issue? And so we have to take our best guess. And if you read uh, the commentaries, there's all sorts of opinions of what he's talking about. And what that reveals is Paul doesn't prioritize 
delineating exactly what the ins and outs of this false teaching was. That's not his priority. His priority is to give the solution. But we do have some guesses. And our best guess is that the Colossian believers, which were mostly Gentiles or non-Jews, they were giving in to what was already in the air. This was a pluralistic society with an array of differing beliefs and also an array of differing gods that were over different areas of life that had impact, that had a say in how your business went, that had a say in how your family went, that had a say in how your daily life went. This was the the thoughts of the air, the, the beliefs of your neighbors. And so what seemed to be universal was that there were spiritual powers at work in the world and in their daily lives, and the locals constructed a system of belief that would allow them to appease these powers and be able to just live a good life, to have peace, to have uh, prospering. And so it was in the midst of this cultural system that the Colossians became Christians. But even in their newfound faith in the risen Lord Jesus, they were being drawn in by this prevailing ideology. And so instead of living a life of joy and purpose in following Jesus alone as Lord, they were seeking to check the boxes of the culture so that they could live their best life. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I also want to have a successful business, so I need to appease the God of business. They were being driven by fear of cultural and spiritual powers instead of by faith in the risen Jesus. Okay. Psalm 103 has been encouraging me lately, and it it reminds me of what Paul is doing in this chapter. David, who writes Psalm 103, opens the psalm by preaching to himself. He says as he opens, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And you notice he's not speaking to God. He's not speaking to the congregation. He's speaking to himself. So he says, he's basically looking inward and saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And don't forget all his benefits. And so then he starts to lay out a litany of benefits of knowing God. He forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So David is just listing thing after thing after thing of what God has done for him. So for whatever reason, whether it was fear of his enemies or inner turmoil or feelings of condemnation, doubts, whatever, David was getting distracted away from God. And so then he preaches God's goodness to himself. He says, don't forget. Don't forget what God has done for you. And I think that's what Paul is doing in this chapter. Last week, we studied verses 6 through 15, where Paul basically lays out the litany of benefits 
of knowing and being in Christ. He says, you were empty and Christ who is the fullness of deity filled you. You were a sinner incapable of changing your ways and Christ achieved the inner change that only he can. You were dead in your sin, cut off from God because of the wrong you had done and God nailed your sin to the cross. You were under the authority of dark spiritual forces and Christ triumphed over them. So Paul is telling them, do not forget all of Christ's benefits. And so after he lays out the benefits in the previous paragraph, he now turns to address what they're being distracted by. And so our, our, the sermon today is called Beware of Distractions. And just like the Colossians can, were falling into distractions away from the core of the gospel, we are so prone to distractions. Our lives are built around distraction. That is life in the modern world. Be distracted. And so let's look at some of these distractions that they were facing. Let's look again at verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, because of all the benefits of Christ, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so here we see that they are distracted by shadows over substance. So from these verses, it's pretty clear that some form of Jewish practice was attached to this grander philosophy that was at play in the church. So specifically, we see practices of what to eat, what not to eat, what to drink, what not to drink, as well as weekly, monthly, and yearly worship observances. That's where we see Sabbath, which is weekly, new moons, which is monthly, and yearly, which are the festivals. So what does Paul say about these things? He says, don't be judged. Because of all Christ's benefits for you, don't be judged. There were apparently those who said to these believers, this is how you ought to practice Christianity. This is the only way to worship God. And so Paul, he doesn't outright condemn these practices. He calls them a shadow of what is to come. So in contrast with the shadow, the substance has come, and it's Christ. Shadows are real, but only as a pointer. Y'all know Peter Pan. <laughs> at, what, at one point in the, in the story, Peter Pan's shadow rebelled from him, detached itself from him. And so Peter's trying to get his shadow and put it back on. And Paul here is Wendy sewing the shadow back to Peter. These false teachers have gotten so caught up in the shadow that they lost sight of what the shadow pointed to. Jesus had this same critique of the Jewish leaders of his day 
who enforced Sabbath observance, but to the detriment of people's lives. You'll remember the story of Jesus being in a synagogue on the Sabbath. There's someone with a shriveled hand, and there's Jewish leaders over kind of in the, sh- in the shadows thinking to themselves, hmm, I wonder if Jesus is going to heal this guy, and then we can call him out for working on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is about life, not death. This is a chance to reflect on God's gifts, not to check a box. And so Sabbath observance is a beautiful thing. And I mean, I recommend it. Jesus did it. It's like ice cream. You get to stop working and enjoy God. It's as good as ice cream. I don't know. (laughs) But the key with Sabbath, and all, all Sabbath means is to stop. Like, stop. Your gears are turning, you're working, you're working, you're working. Stop. That's the point. But you have to do it with the right posture. You know, it's, it's not about ceasing from work in order to check a spiritual box. That's not what it's about. It's about ceasing from work as an act of faith and trust in God. That the world doesn't need you to keep turning. It's ceasing from work like God did from his so that you can enjoy God and all he has provided for you. It's about ceasing from striving so you can bask in the true Sabbath rest that Christ has already purchased for you. That's what Sabbath's about. And this is the purpose of all spiritual disciplines. Paul is not calling for a lack of a disciplined Christian life here. Just read chapter 3. He's calling for a disciplined life that finds its ultimate foundation in Christ. Spiritual disciplines are extraordinarily helpful. But what are they helpful for? Checking spirituality boxes to get God off your back? No. They escort us to the feet of Jesus. Any practice that you cultivate, that you curate for yourself, should lead you deeper into the embrace of the God who loves you. That's what those are about. You don't need to be distracted by how other people experience God. And we can experiment with practices that lead us into God's presence. Whether it's Sabbath observance or fasting or different ways to cultivate prayer or worship or celebration or solitude. All of these things Christians have been practicing for millennia and they've been and are helpful. You try to draw near to God without spending time with him in prayer. That prayer is a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual practice. But it shouldn't be a box you check. It's a way to be led to the presence of God. And so Paul's like, don't be judged. Don't be judged about how other people are telling you to follow your Lord Jesus. And so he says, don't be distracted by shadows over substance. And the next uh, one is in verses 18 and 19, he says, don't be distracted by quick fixes over God-ordained growth. 
Look at verse 18. It says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so verse 18 is really the heart of what we know about this philosophy. And it's also the most difficult verse to translate and interpret in this whole book. The biggest challenge with this verse is what do you do with these phrases, worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions? Scholars have spilled plenty of ink trying to understand what Paul is trying to get across here. But what is again clear is that these practices were distracting them, Paul says, away from the head or Christ. And so typical for Paul, the solution is not to delineate this philosophy in detail. It is to remind them to hold fast to the head. But we should make our best guesses as to what this philosophy entailed. Firstly, that word asceticism, fancy word, it just means humility. It's used several other times in the New Testament. All of them are good. Like, just, it's just humility. You should be humble. Like, it's used in a positive light. And so, what Paul is referring to here seems to be some sort of false humility leading to practices of, whether it's extreme fasting or self-deprivation, likely to achieve a certain pious status in preparation for a spiritual experience. Okay? And that leads us to the worship of angels. What? What is likely happening here is that Paul is being a little bit sarcastic. What we know now is that it was a common practice in the region, and this is ancient western Turkey, It's a region that was called Phrygia. At the time, it was a common practice to call on angels for help in dealing with demons. So it wasn't so much that people were like bowing down to angels. It was that they were leaning on angels for help instead of God. God's too busy. I'm going to call on angels. There were incantations that people would say in order to call on angels for help in warding off evil spirits, basically for practical purposes, for my business, for my family, for tomorrow's weather, for the harvest, whatever's going on. And so Paul here goes for the jugular. He says, in prioritizing the help of angels over God, you might as well be worshiping them. Stop. And then finally, going on in detail about visions. This can mean a couple of things. First, this phrase might be referring to some kind of initiation ritual in order to be inducted into a community of this local philosophy. Or it could just be referring, kind of like what it says in the ESV, which is what I read, but if you have other translations, you might have noticed it's a lot different. It might be referring to a description of an ecstatic experience of receiving a vision. 
But either way, Paul's critique of it is simple. It's just hot air, and it's a distraction. He says, when you're doing these things, you are puffed up without reason. Basically, it's you're filled with air, and there's no good reason for it. And then it says, by his sensuous mind. That just means by a mind of flesh. This is a a human thing. It's not helpful. It's a distraction. So these believers were being drawn to spiritual growth and spiritual experiences that had lost Jesus as their center. They were drawn to quick spiritual growth and success and experiences for the sake of experiences. So Paul's solution is what it's always been. If we are the body, we need to hold fast to our heads. Without the head, the body is dead. We see three things about God's growth plan here in verse In verse 19, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. So first we see that Jesus is the only source of spiritual growth. It says the head, from whom? This growth comes from the head. He isn't just over us and in charge of us. He is the source of our growth. This means that any practice that you dive into needs to find the lordship of Jesus at its core. You know, helpful programs and practices are good, but they need to drive you to Jesus, not give you an excuse not to need him. Second, this is a group thing. It says, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. This is a picture of unity, of mutual dependence, and mutual love. This is all of us. This isn't just you and Jesus. It's us and Jesus. And so, yes, you should grab your oxygen first. You need to be connected to Jesus first. But you should care about those around you getting access to that oxygen. Paul uses uh, that word knit together uh, earlier in chapter 2, verse 2. He says uh, that your hearts would be encouraged being knit together in love. So that's really what this picture is. is It's a growth together in Jesus. What does it look like? It looks like love. And then third, who gives the growth? God does. At the end it says, We're growing with a growth that comes from God. And so the question is, do we have an active role in this? It's from Jesus and it's it's from God. Do we have an active role to play? Absolutely we do. And Paul writes a similar uh, paragraph in the letter to the Ephesians. And this is what he says. He says, in referring to the church and how it functions, he says, You should be speaking the truth in love. You are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined and held together by every joint with, it, with which it is equipped. And then it says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul emphasizes here that in Colossians that God is the one who grants us growth. But it's also true that we participate. But it's cool because God wants us to grow. That's his plan for us. He's motivated for us to grow together. All right, lastly, what's the last distraction? Verses 20 20 to 23, he says, don't be distracted by what you're already freed from. Let's look at verses 20 to 23 again. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, same word, humility, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." And so Paul goes right to the heart of, the, of this incorrect, unhelpful, and distracting philosophy. Not only is Christ the substance that all practices should point them to, not only is he the head and therefore the purpose of life and, and the, the source of their growth, but in Christ's death, they also died. And what died with them was the allegiance they used to owe to these hostile powers of the world. What they possibly don't realize is that they actually used to be truly under the jurisdiction of these powers. Paul emphasizes this as well in Ephesians. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so the Colossians are just going about their daily lives, feeling the need to appease these powers in order to live a peaceful life. But what they don't realize is that these powers used to have complete authority over them. And the basis of this authority from verse 14 was what Paul calls the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And so prior to Christ, before our record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands was nailed to the cross, before that, we're under the jurisdiction of these powers. They have authority. So the Colossians have no idea how bad they had it. And they also have no idea how good they now have it. Yes, they used to be under the jurisdiction of these powers, but now the basis for that has been canceled. Paul says, nailed to the cross. So why are they still getting drawn in? by this culture around them to please worldly opinions. 
And Paul lays out these, so a few of these in brief. He says, you're listening to these opinions like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And these seem to be Paul's abbreviation of these self-deprecating, self-abasing uh, practices that would grant them entrance into a visionary spiritual experience. This is what they needed to do to get along. He comments on how meaningless this is in verse 22. He says, these are referring to things that all perish as they are used. This this food that you're avoiding, it will literally be gone in a week. He's concerned that they are getting distracted and tunnel-visioned on menial things, like food, that will literally perish in a matter of days. And he seems to be drawing from a saying of Jesus in Mark chapter 7. You know, Jesus uh, dealt with a lot of food laws and, and, you know, unclean foods and what you can't eat, of course, because he's a Jew. And this is the culture around him. But he is bringing something new. You know, he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark throws in a little parenthesis and says, Thus he declared all foods clean. Great. Yes. I love that verse. And then Jesus goes on and says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He covers the gamut here. Then he says, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so Paul says here that external behavioral modification looks wise. It even makes you look spiritual. But it doesn't work. Physical fixes aren't enough. You needed a heart change. Changing what you eat is not going to change your heart. And so Jesus is saying that all of the food laws and unclean codes in the Old Covenant were pointing to something deeper. Pointing to the substance. Something He came to take care of. So the Colossians have both an incorrect view of the severity of their original problem and an incorrect view of the sufficiency of the solution that Jesus has provided. And so they need not be distracted by ideologies that seek their loyalty anymore. They have been set free in the death of Christ. They are free from being distracted by what Paul calls every wind of doctrine. And for us, I mean, there are countless winds of doctrine these days. Things you can't eat things you should eat, things you can't say, things you should say in order to be counted righteous. But Paul calls all of this of no value. All this does is lead us to a self-centered, 
unhelpful, unloving, and unsaving religion. The biggest tool that the enemies of Jesus have right now is distraction. Satan wants nothing more than to distract the church. The body of Christ. You and me. From living our lives faithfully and publicly and corporately for our King. The types of distractions are endless. Political divisions, theological and tribal arrogance, sin, condemnation, fear, entertainment, compromise, selfishness, and the list just goes. What distractions are you falling for these days? But here's the good news. Right there in verse 20. With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. In Christ, we are freed from distraction. We don't have to go for it. You know, anything we find helpful in our devotion to Christ, we can enjoy with open hands. Any quick fixes or ecstatic experiences we can see through as hot air and unhelpful and continue in growing together toward Christ. You guys might remember when Peter saw Jesus in the middle of a storm walking on water. He got FOMO. He's like, I want to walk on water. I don't want to live my whole life without having walked on water. And so he's like, Jesus invite me. <laughs> invite me out there. Because if you invite me out there, I can do it. And Jesus is like, sure, come on. Come on out. And so he jumps out of the boat and onto the water. Not into the water, onto the water. And he's walking on water with Jesus. But in that moment, there was a lot of distractions vying for his attention. Of course, the waves, the wind, the storm, but also just the fact that he's walking on water. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But he took his attention off Jesus. He, he looked away. He looked down. He looked around. And he lost sight of Jesus. And then he gained his gravity back <laughs> and fell in. The key to not getting distracted it's not just to avoid distraction. Oh, distraction. Oh, avoid, 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 avoid. No, it's to keep your attention somewhere. It's to keep your eyes on Jesus. And as his body, we have a great duty. We have a great honor. We have a great responsibility. We have a great task. We are to keep our eyes on him. His cross his resurrection, and his kingdom. His cross is our model. We are to be his body. What did his body go through? Suffering, 
laying down its life. We are to do that too. We are to be sacrificially loving to our world like he was. But we also keep an eye on his resurrection. And that's our hope. When he returns, we will also have a resurrected body, just like his. And we keep an eye also on his kingdom. His kingdom is the hope of this world. Just like the psalmist prayed, he looked around at all the rulers and the nations that that oppress, that are unjust, that prey on the weak and vulnerable, that prioritize the powerful. His kingdom is the hope of this world. We aren't just Christians, you know, sealed for heaven, awaiting our escape pod. No, we proclaim, and by his grace we embody a better kingdom than all the kings of this world can offer. His kingdom is where all of us are headed. And so if Jesus, his cross, his resurrection, and his kingdom are big in our eyes, then we will be less likely to be distracted by the latest shiny toy, the latest urgent distraction. So let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this this word from Paul, Lord, that just keeps Christ at the center. Lord Jesus, you are the substance. Lord, anything we do, any, anything we do in order to, to know you more, to grow in you, we want it to be first and foremost grounded in you and to lead us to you. Lord, create in us discipline that, that prioritizes devotion to you. And Lord, we thank you that you are the head, that we don't have to be a church with our running around like a chicken with its head cut off. Lord, we know whose we are. We know where we're going. And so we can have peace. We can have confidence. We can grow because our growth comes from you. Our growth is given by you. As each of us is a part of your body, doing our part. And Lord, we praise you, Jesus, that in your death, We died, and the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you that in that death, all of what is wrong with us was nailed to the cross. And you have gifted us righteousness. You have gifted us new life. Lord, it's so tempting to be drawn back into our old ways, to our old life, to the things that, that didn't necessarily give us life but gave us normalcy, comfort. But Lord, we want to live a true life of faith with you, a life of, of adventure directed uh, and, and guided by you and by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would teach us both individually and corporately what it means to walk with you in this day and age 
with all the distractions that we have in front of us. Lord, as a church, as we, as we seek to embody a, an outpost of your kingdom, Lord, may we do that well. May we do it having such love for one another that we are knit together, nourished, and yet with such an outward looking and loving that we would bring our neighbors into this kingdom as well. Lord, teach us how to do that in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. All right, we're going to spend some time just responding in worship uh, with singing. And then uh, Kelly and Sam.